Since the beginning of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, there have been concerns about Ukrainian children. Russia has taken children away from their homes in Ukraine and put them in summer camps or with foster families within Russia. The Russian government says that this is to keep children away from the front lines of the war. But the International Criminal Court says that it's illegal. The court put out arrest warrants earlier this year for Russian President Vladimir Putin and Russia's Children's Rights Commissioner for forcibly deporting hundreds of Ukrainian children into Russia. Today, The Globe's senior international correspondent, Mark McKinnon, tells us about two siblings separated by this practice. He managed to speak with a teenager who traveled more than a thousand kilometers to try to bring her brother back home. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and this is The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Mark, thank you so much for being here again. Thank you, Manika. So I know that you talked to a teenager in Ukraine uh, who was separated from her brother. So can you just start by telling me about about this girl and her brother? Yeah, uh, Ksenia, she's an 18-year-old who at the start of the war, she and her brother were taken away from their mom. Her mom, their mom was an alcoholic. And before the war, what were you doing? What was your life like? And six months before the war, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, she and her brother Sergei, who's 11, were moved in with another family in a border town called Vovchansk. And so they already have quite a bit of trauma, quite a bit of change in their lives. Mm. And they're left with this foster family, and they're frankly not getting along very well with this foster family. You know, she describes it not being a very happy place. She said she'd been warned by other foster kids in town that this family was notorious for sort of just taking in extra kids to sort of get more welfare payments from the government Mm -hmm. and then basically treated kids like servants and got them to do everything around the house. It was like we were working for her while she was laying there watching television. And then, as you can imagine, on top of all this, there's the Russian invasion of Ukraine and they've quickly fall into the town there in Vovchansk quickly comes under Russian occupation. Vovchansk was one of the entry points, so we've seen the war from the moment it started. So so they were basically living kind of right on the border between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, What was it like for the Mark when Russia invaded in February of last year? So Ksenia tells this story about how on the night before the war, and I remember it really well, those sort of last days before February 24th, 2022. Everybody was, every night it seemed like there was a rumor that Russia was going to invade that night, that the war was going to start. And you can imagine it would have been even worse if you're living right on the border. And there are also a lot of people who believed it would never happen. And uh, the night before the invasion began, so it's February the 23rd. I'm a very intuitive person, and I was going to sleep around 11 p.m. on the 23rd, and a photo frame fell down on the floor. And for me, it was a moment where I felt that something bad was going to happen. 
And then, you know, while the rest of the country or most of the rest of the country, places like Kiev where I was or Kharkiv or Odessa were, were awakened by the sounds of explosions and Russian missiles attacking their cities, in Vovchansk, the first thing she heard was the sound of tanks and trucks rolling through uh, the city, which is literally, you know, seven or eight kilometers from the Russian border. And then I woke up in the middle of the night, maybe 3 or 4 a.m., and I heard this heavy sound of trucks driving over the streets. As soon as the war started, really, the occupation of Vovchensk started. Okay, so this area was basically taken over almost immediately, it sounds like. Um, But how did things in her hometown change then when, when that invasion happened? Well, you know, the first uh, in, in Vovchansk, like a lot of uh, parts of, of deoccupied Ukraine, places that are now back under Ukrainian control, you hear the same sort of tales. The, the first few days, people stayed in their basements. People um, were afraid to go outside. They stayed in their shelters. And then after a few days, you know, people had to go outside. They had to buy, buy food, find food. Yeah. Um, and, and Vovchansk being in, in sort of an occupied place, all the shops were closed. And it's so close to the Russian border that people started going across the border. The next town, it's actually a city uh, much bigger than Vovchansk called Shebekino on the Russian side. And people were, would go there and buy food. And uh, Vovchansk was always a, uh, it's a Russian-speaking part of Ukraine, eastern Ukraine. So that would have been natural to them to be speaking Russian. But people started, you know, at a shop on the Russian side, they didn't want the Ukrainian currency, the Krivna. They wanted Russian rubles. So people started to operate more and more in rubles. And then after a while, they'd lose Ukrainian cell phone service, mobile phone service. They have to go and buy a Russian SIM card. And to do that, you have to register with the occupation authorities. And so more and more, you just sort of drift into this this new reality of, of being in, in what they're told is the Russian Federation, even though obviously they were in, in, always in Ukraine. Ksenia told me that it was people eventually just sort of started working with the Russian authorities. People became collaborators. People agreed to work with the Russian authorities. Some of them were forced, probably. It's still unclear. But a lot of people started to work for the Russians. But at some point, it's very difficult to live in an occupied place and not deal with the the authorities. And so whether it's accessing social services, whether that's, you know, getting your utilities switched on, or if you work for these places, if you work at a hospital or a police station, is it cooperating uh, with the occupation to to work and get paid by uh, the government? Or is that just helping your, your society continue to survive? So, so let me ask you about Ksenia again here, Mark. I mean, she she's living there. What happens to her in those early months of the war? So she turns eighteen very early in the war, and so she's no longer a ward of the state, so to speak. She's no longer able to live in this foster home she'd been in. I turned eighteen, and my foster mom forced me to go to Shebekino to vocational school. I had nowhere to go, and she didn't want me at home because I'd become an adult. So she. Uh, moves across the border into, into Russia, into Shebekino, and, and takes up uh, residence at a, at a hairdressing school. And she says to me that, you know, she never wanted to be a hairdresser, but here was a place that she could sleep and it wasn't far from her brother. And so, and so then what happens to her brother? How, how do they end up separated? So the next thing that happened, this and this is quite a widespread uh, phenomenon that, you know, you know, frankly, you know, even the International Criminal Court is coming, just coming to grips with. And this is, there was a concerted effort to take Ukrainian children and get them to move 
into Russia. And um, in some cases, this was just an ordinary family. Imagine you're living in a place like Vovchansk, which the front line was never very far from. And there's constant uh, explosions because even after it gets taken under Russian occupation, the Ukrainians are now trying to recapture this area. And they are firing at places like Vovchansk. And so, you know, the offer is, you know, send your kids somewhere safe for the summer, send them to a summer camp hundreds of kilometers away in Russia. Wouldn't that be better for them? Mm. And for a lot of ordinary families, that's a very difficult choice to make. For kids like Sergei, who were orphans or fostered, there seems to be an even more pressure applied to get these kids to go to these camps, these loggers in Russia. Ksenia says that she spoke to the foster family and said, please don't do this. I tried to convince our foster mom not to send my brother, but I couldn't. And of course, the idea of sending kids away from the, the front lines, you know, that that's something that is done in war. But it sounds like this is a, a different kind of situation here. I guess, what what do we know about this summer camp, Mark? It would have been for for anybody who grew up in, in Russia or Ukraine or the former Soviet Union, it would have been very natural to send your kid to one of these summer camps. They were... They were called loggers, and if that word sounds familiar, it's because, you know, the word gulag comes, the, the last three letters, it's an acronym, and the last three letters are the first three letters of logger, of a camp, you know, a, a labor camp. Well, many, many, many Russian, Ukrainian, and Soviet kids went to these camps, and uh, during the Soviet era, they were uh, connected to this idea of being young pioneers and being, you know, kids would, in addition to getting exercise and fresh air, would also be getting a um, sort of background in, in how to be a good communist and a bit of Leninism and Marxism mixed in with your uh, with your football. Young pioneers is kind of like the scouts or the brownies, the girl guides, that kind of thing? Essentially, um, <laughs> although obviously with a very different uh, sort of ideological take. Right. Uh, for the first 20-something years after the fall of the Soviet Union in Russia and Ukraine, these camps became you know, roughly like they are in the West. But since the start of the conflict between Russia and the West, since the annexation of Crimea, since the start of the proxy war in Donbass, nine years ago, uh, Russia has sort of gone back towards patriotic education camps for kids. And I've seen these videos where, you know, kids are dressed up in military uniforms, they're running around with guns, there are fake explosions going off while they, instead of playing football, they're, they're, they're practicing, you know, you know, storming a city. Um, and, and they really are about building the next generation of sort of loyal uh, Kremlin uh, youth. Um, and especially for these kids that are being brought from Ukraine, they're, they're being given sort of a political education. That political education is, is for the Russian perspective on this war, that Ukraine is a fascist state, Ukraine is a failed state. And so the kids that go to these camps, you know, they're very much uh, the idea is they will come back either uh, feeling like citizens of the Russian Federation or else feeling very suspicious of the Ukrainian state. We'll be back in a minute. So how common is this practice, Mark, of, of, of Ukrainian children being being taken to Russia? So we have a whole bunch of very different numbers on that one. The Russian government itself says that there are 700,000 Ukrainian children that have crossed the border into uh, Russia since the greater invasion began since the February 24th, 2022. Now, that number, even if that number is accurate, it wouldn't tell you really what's going on because it would be every Ukrainian minor that crossed the border and and I know from my interviews there's lots of evidence that many would have been fleeing from a place like Mariupol at the start of the war and then maybe going all the way around to Latvia Lithuania to the Baltic states and then coming back to Ukraine so but they'd be clocked as having gone into Russia so this number is kind of doesn't tell us very much hmm. 
The okay. uh, Save Ukraine, the NGO, which uh, helps Ghassani and Sergei reunite, actually uses an even bigger number. They say 1.5 million because they're talking about every Ukrainian child who is currently living under occupation in Crimea, which was taken in 2014, Donetsk, Lukonsk, as well as uh, the, the areas the Russia's taken since the greater invasion started. Um, the International Criminal Court, which has pressed charges against Russian President uh, Vladimir Putin and Maria Lavova Belova, who is the uh, Russian Children's Rights Commissioner, they just say hundreds because they're tracking hundreds of specific cases, particularly when it comes to orphans and foster kids. There's a real effort to get them to move to Russia, not just to go to camp, but to keep them there and to rehome them. Separately, but related to this, there's a, there's a great big uh, demographic crisis in Russia where um, it's an aging population. The birth rates are very low. And now they've had almost two years of war with a lot of uh, tens of thousands of young men being killed. There's a population deficit in Russia and um, you know a lot of sort of families willing to take on Ukrainian foster kids with the idea that they're saving these kids from having to grow up in this terrible place next door, which is what almost happened to Sergei. Yeah, and 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 I, I obviously want to pick up his story soon too. But I, I guess I, I want to. You you mentioned that the ICC, the International Criminal Court, uh, says that this is a war crime. This practice of, of taking kids. Why is that? It fits into the broader concept of of genocide, frankly, of trying to eliminate a population or drive a population off of its territory or a specific ethnic group. And so by removing children forcibly from a war zone and bringing them to a different country and, and frankly, sort of uh, inflicting a different culture on them and trying to change uh, the cultural background of these children, that's part of the greater idea of trying to erase an ethnic group, which many, many Ukrainians believe is what the Russian Federation is really trying to do here. They manipulate children because they have this mission to increase the population of Russia. And the easiest way to do that is by taking children. So so what ended up happening with Sergei? We, we, we know he went to Russia, he went to one of these summer camps. Uh, what ended up happening to him after that? So Sergei goes to this camp in the summer of 2022, so July, August 2022. And then in September, all of a sudden, there's this massive breakthrough where the Ukrainian army had liberated all of Kharkiv region, including Vovchansk. And so you have this situation where Ukrainian forces have recaptured Vovchansk. It's safe to go, if not back there, maybe back to Kharkiv or, or back to Kiev. Uh, but... Ksenia is at school in or living at this hairdressing college in Shebekino, and Serhi is in Krasnodar at this summer camp. And when the summer camp ends, when the summer ends, Serhi is sent to a new foster family in the same area in the southern Krasnodar region. And so that's mm-hmm. the next time that Ksenia makes contact with him. And Ksenia decides, because of the, the people that she knows in Shebekino, she describes them as zombies. They just believed everything the television told them about what was happening in Ukraine. She decides that she wants to go back to Ukraine. By that time, I was completely devastated mentally and physically. I made a firm decision to get back to Ukraine. But I also made a promise to myself that I would only go back with my brother. So Kazenia hears that her brother is is now with a foster family in, in Russia. What does she do with that? So Ksenia at first doesn't know what to do. And then she meets in Quebec, you know, she meets another young Ukrainian woman from the Kharkiv region that she'd met previously before the war. And through their conversations, this friend tells her about Save Ukraine, says, you know, like, if you want to get your brother, you should get in contact. 
what happens, you know, it, it's really quite impressive. But she she reaches out to to save Ukraine, and they put her in contact with a local volunteer, uh, somebody who lives in Russia, but is a a volunteer for Save Ukraine. Uh, she somehow gets the phone number of the uh, foster family and speaks to her brother. And she says the first time she calls her brother, he's quite excited to hear from her and, and quite excited by the idea of going home. Mm. And then she starts to sort of move the conversation forward. It was an absolute labyrinth of paperwork. I was told I needed permission to transfer a child. I needed it translated to Russian. I needed to do this and that. I checked with my brother first, of course, if he wanted to come with me or not. He told me, yes, he wanted to go back with me to Ukraine. In subsequent calls, she says it feels like he started to change. He no longer wants to go home. He starts telling her that he's happier where he is. And at the end, when the decision was made and the documents were almost done, the foster family started to apply psychological pressure on my brother to change his mind. She hears from him sort of a little bit of what he's getting from the, from the Russian summer camp. She starts to get this message from him that Ukraine is destroyed as a country. Ukraine is poor. They told him different things from there's a war there to people are homeless in Ukraine and you'll have no future there. Different types of propaganda. And that starts to change Sergei's mind. And then the foster family stops letting her speak to him. So then she makes the decision that mm. I'm going to have to go get him. I'm going to have to go speak to him in person. So with this volunteer, they drive a thousand kilometers from Shebekino down to Krasnodar province to try and find Sergei. Wow. And, and did she find him? She did. And she says it was you know the, the worst moment of this entire ordeal is when she encounters him. Um, and at first it's in the presence of the foster family and a Russian social worker. And she says, that, like, he didn't look happy to see her. After all this, her little brother looked mm-hmm. angry that, he, that she'd gone through all this to try and find him. And then he's saying, sticking to this line, that he doesn't want to go home. He's happier where he is. I wouldn't say he'd been physically tortured, but he looked like an alien person. He wasn't pleased to see me. At this point, you know, Sergei wasn't um, able to speak about this, about his own experience, his own perspective on all this uh, for child protection reasons, among others. But, it, you know, there is a, a sense from Ksenia that her brother had been changed by this, by this experience in a Russian summer camp. And finally, and this is one of the more interesting roles in all this, is the Russian social worker um, says, you know, allows, creates a space for, for Ksenia and her brother to go for a walk. I think they go to buy ice cream together and to speak privately. And in this conversation, she makes a couple of promises. One is she promises her little brother that if he goes back to Ukraine with her, she'll buy him a quad bike. And then... I said that he would just go for a month, and if he doesn't like it, he'll come back to Russia. But I didn't mean it. The third promise that she makes is that she's never, ever going to let her brother go back there. Yeah. And so did the two of them end up back in Ukraine then? So he, inspired by the idea of getting a quad bike, and if there's any listener out there who wants to provide one, I'll deliver it. There is a, uh, they, they, they go on and they drive all day and all night um, back through this route that we're not going to talk about. But it, it's a long drive um, from Krasnodar to get back into Ukraine. And uh, she said that Sergei slept almost the entire time, which also you know makes you wondering what kind of experiences he'd been through. Uh, they're back in Kiev now. I realized that the oxygen smells better on this side of the border. 
He is, uh, the poor kid's now with his third foster family since the start of this war. Uh, Ksenia is uh, living in a nearby, in a, in a youth hostel. Um, so they're trying to make a go of it. She said that when they first got there, Sergei was really mad at her because, you know, while Kiev is safe by day most of the time, uh, it is a place where there are sirens and explosions. And, you know, it, it is a lot more tense, I imagine, than, you know, an idyllic life in a summer camp in southern Russia. Um, so it's taken them, taken him a little while to forgive her and taken her a little while to sort of convince herself that, yes, that she did the right thing. I guess, how, yeah, how does she feel about being back in Ukraine with him now? She's done a lot of thinking about how it happened and how the people that she knew in Volchansk allowed themselves to be part of this. People in the occupied areas have no information. I want to help break through this wall and show them how things are in reality. And um, really interestingly, she's decided to go back to school and to try and become a journalist this time, not a hairdresser, but she's... Mm-hmm. Decided the problem, the root core problem was the people in Vovchansk who were receiving only sort of Russian propaganda didn't really understand the bigger picture, didn't understand what was happening, hadn't read about Russia's patriotic re-education, hadn't thought about the purposes of this Russian military invasion, and had allowed themselves to be, to be manipulated. So she thinks that the, the real fundamental problem was misinformation and disinformation, and she wants to fight that. Thank you so much. (laughs) Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Adrian Chung is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.